If you, <laughs> well, I was wondering if anybody would be awake after you've uh, listened to all those sermons. So thanks for answering that already, at least three of you. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18. It's a great joy to, um, to speak this afternoon to uh, uh, close uh, this incredible conference in which we've been uh, considering the identity of our God and our own identity. And in this passage, I want us to, to think about um, the Lord God and how we are his servants from a very famous story, uh, the showdown at Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I just want to read a couple of verses, though we'll look through uh, the entire uh, narrative. 1 Kings chapter 18, let me read just verses 17 to verse 19. This sets the, the stage. The writer says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Grateful for the Lord Jesus, grateful for the Holy Spirit, grateful to have brothers and sisters to live out this Christian life with. Thank you for your word now. We pray that you would teach us, you would inspire us, you would use this time as a means of grace to make us more like Christ. Give us a deeper sense of belief that you answer prayer cultivating us deeper affections for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but I love movies with uh, showdowns. Anybody like Tombstone? Yeah. Um, I love uh, Clint Eastwood, Westerns, uh, Open Range, of course, all the superhero uh, movies that have the stories of the superhero and the villain. But the Bible also has a, a number of stories with showdowns in which the Lord takes a very common, ordinary person and by his mighty power uses them to overcome the enemies of darkness. This individual is raised up as a leader, as a mediator, sometimes a prophet, sometimes a king, sometimes a priest, and he uses them for his glory. The, probably the most celebrated story of the Lord using an individual to overcome the enemies of darkness in the Old Testament is the story of Moses, which most of you I'm sure are familiar with. Moses was an older man, he was a shepherd, and the Lord called him to go up against the, the most powerful person in the known world at that time, Pharaoh. And you remember Moses' call when Moses is out in, the, uh, out in the fields and he hears Moses. And Moses finds this bush that was uh, burning, but it wasn't burnt. And Moses and the Lord have this conversation in which the Lord uh, asks, uh, or Moses asks the Lord, what is your name? And the Lord tells him, I am who I am is my name. Right at the beginning of Moses' call, Moses is made aware of the fact that the most important thing about his ministry, God says, is me. Your view of me is the most important thing about you. Your view of who I am is the most important thing about your ministry. And of course, Moses then uh, is told to go up to the most powerful person in the world and say, let all my people go. And Moses goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's not having it. And so, the, you know the story, the Lord sends the plagues. 
He sends uh, frogs and he, he sends the, the blood. They're eating their ramen noodles and frogs and are, are hopping everywhere. And then Moses is uh, then uh, allowed to take the people out of the wilderness and head to the promised land. And so there he goes. I imagine singing MC Hammer, can't touch this, in his, in his uh, chariot. Uh, you know, just rolling in my chariot. Yo, put the rag top down so my hair could blow. And then the, the Pharaoh uh, decides to, to chase Moses. And he gets to the edge of the water. And Moses is scared. The people want to kill Moses. And he prays. And the Lord says, hold out your staff and watch the water part. And he holds out his staff and the waters part. And they go through the sea safely. Pharaoh's army gets swallowed up. And in the very next chapter, in Exodus 15, they sing a song. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Now, you see some of these stories pop up in Judges, in which God takes ordinary individuals and and uses them for his glory. You see it often in Judges, though Judges is a very dark period in Israel's history. There were a few bright spots, namely a guy named Gideon, who is like the, the ultimate Rocky story in the Old Testament. Gideon uh, is, is the, the least of his tribe in Israel, and he's tapped on the shoulder to go fight the trained Midianites. And Gideon says, I think you've got the wrong guy. And the Lord says, no, you're the guy, but you have too many men. And so he whittles his men down to 300, and Gideon wants a series of signs because he's weak in faith, and he wants affirmation that the Lord is really in this. And so the last sign is one I've always loved. In Judges chapter 7, Gideon goes down to the enemy camp, and a guy is having a dream. And he says, behold, I have dreamed a dream, and I have dreamed that a cake of barley bread has just rolled down the hill and killed us. I, I dreamed that a biscuit done killed all of us, right? It was, it was barley bread. It was ordinary bread. Nothing significant about that bread. And the guy interprets the dream, and he says, oh, that's Gideon. And Gideon is now affirmed. He goes back to his camp, and he says, guys, we're going to take him. And they're like, how do we know? And Gideon's like, said, I'm a biscuit. Guy had a dream. Like, I'm just this little ordinary biscuit that's rolling down a hill. He didn't have a dream of a knight in shining armor. He didn't have a dream of this mighty warrior. He had a dream of a biscuit. And he says, so what's our plan? And so here's our plan, guys. We're going to blow trumpets. That's what we're going to do. We're going to take the band. That's all we're doing is we're taking the band. And they win this battle, and the Lord gives Israel 40 years of peace. And the reoccurring theme in in that narrative is the Lord was with Gideon. The Lord was with Gideon. Just as he was with Moses, just as he was with Joshua, just as he is now with Gideon. And these stories pop up until we get to 1 Kings chapter 18, and you see yet another story of a very ordinary guy that the Lord raises up in a very dark period of Israel's history, to overcome the enemies of darkness. It's a firefight at Mount Carmel. Now, the reason I've chosen Elijah this this evening is for this reason. I want us to think about having a high view of God. If you truly have a high view of the Lord God, then you will follow him in bold faith and seek him in desperate prayer. If you truly have a high view of the Lord God, you will, you will, you will follow him in bold faith. That's, what's gonna, that, that's the, what, what Elijah says later in the story. If the Lord is God, follow him. And then the whole showdown is a story of which God answers prayer. Who is the living God? Tozer famously said, A.W. Tozer, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
Were we able to extract from any man or woman a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. Now, my paraphrase of that is, your theology leads to biography. What you believe inevitably shapes how you live. I would recommend that book, by the way, The Knowledge of the Holy. Just a side note, when I was a college student, or I was a seminary student, leading some college students through that little book, we would, read, we would drink A&W root beer as we read A.W. Tozer, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy. So just giving you a little idea there. High view of the Lord leads to bold faith, leads to desperate prayer. Those are the themes we're going to see. Now, James helps us in the New Testament by telling us that we ought to look for Elijah as a model of prayer. When he writes this in James chapter 5, he says, Elijah was a human being as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Now that's meant to inspire you. Elijah is a person like us. When you read the story of Elijah, you are to say, ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Nothing special about Elijah. We can relate to him in so many different ways. We can relate to Elijah's obscurity. Chapter 17 is where we're introduced to Elijah. He's from a place called Tishbe, and nobody even knows where that is. How many of you from a town that no one knows where it is? Yeah, and you're like, can the Lord really do something with my life? Let me introduce you to Elijah. It doesn't matter if you're from Bun or Dunn or Pumpkin Run, right? Or Lundun. But you, you never know where the next great servant of the Lord is going to come from. Right now, he might be smoking an e-cig across the street at the high school. I mean, look at us. Like, how, how did we get here? This is Elijah. We shouldn't imagine this really polished-looking pastor. We should picture Braveheart when we think about Elijah. This is a roughneck guy from the middle of nowhere who just shows up on the scene in the middle of Israel's darkest period in the story of the kings in which if you're not familiar with the background Ahab is the king and if you just flip back to chapter 16 at the end of 16 you read a few phrases that let you know how bad Ahab really was it says he did more evil than any king before him which was saying a lot because after David died it is one series with a few exceptions of bad king after bad king he marries a lady named Jezebel who also worship Baal, and they have now sponsored Baal worship in Israel. 1 Kings 16, verse 33 says, Ahab made the Asherah as well, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than any king before him. And so that sets the stage now for this guy, Elijah. And so in each of these three chapters, 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19, we read stories about his faith, about his prayer, and about his humanity. In chapter 17, he prays for the onset of a drought. And then he prays for a kid who has died. And he's raised to life. In chapter 18, there is this showdown, which we're going to read in just a moment, in which he's basically saying, let's see which God answers prayer. He's the real God. And then in chapter 19, he actually prays for God to kill him. He's so discouraged. He's a very human individual. We find him very discouraged, but the Lord rejuvenates Elijah. And he is back to life and doing his thing in 1 Kings 21. So his whole, his whole life is a story of, of how God works through this ordinary man. 
And because he has a high view of his God, he lives a life of bold faith and desperate prayer. And so what I'd like for us to do is look at it in three parts briefly this afternoon. Number one, I would like for us to consider the proposal for the showdown. Number two, the purpose of the showdown. And number three, the prayer answering champion of the showdown. So we just read the proposal. Let's look at it in verse 17 to, to verse 19. When Elijah uh, meets with Ahab, Ahab calls him the troubler of Israel. He thinks Elijah is a troublemaker. He wants to get rid of Elijah. Now, um, Ahab's wife, Jezebel, we read earlier in chapter 18, verse 3 and 4, that she is killing the prophets. There's this one cat named Obadiah who's hiding the prophets in a cave and taking them food and, and drink. And so Elijah is very bold, first of all, in just showing himself to Ahab. They want to wipe him off the face of the earth. And so Ahab addresses him as this troubler of Israel. Jezebel is sort of like the modern person today who preaches tolerance, but actually has a very intolerant agenda. What she could not tolerate was the exclusive worship of Yahweh. And that's what drove them crazy with Elijah. So we read here in verse 18 that Elijah says to Ahab, I haven't troubled you. You have. You've troubled the Lord because you've done two things. Number one, you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord. And consequently, you've allowed the whole nation to go this way. And you followed the Baals. Now, Baal was a false god. Uh, he's pictured in, uh, in art as uh, a, a guy with a, a big thunderbolt uh, as his arrow. He was the storm god, which is quite ironic that there's a drought in Israel while they're worshiping the storm god. Drought, by the way, was judgment for idolatry. He was also known to be the god of fire, which comes into play in this story. Will he send the fire? He hasn't sent the rain. Will he send the fire? So Elijah makes this proposal. He says, I want you, verse 19, to meet me at Mount Carmel. It's a showdown. 850 prophets against one. He's quite an underdog, isn't he? And it's an away game, you might say. He's going on Baal's territory. Baal was, was uh, it, Mount Carmel was called Baal's Bluff. That was sort of a nickname for it. It's where Baal worship took place. He went to enemy-occupied territory to have this showdown. It's sort of like a, a local middle school team playing at Cameron Indoor Stadium, only, only worse. Now, that should encourage many of you because many of you will actually go to hard places. You're going to minister to hard places, and really any place is hard if you're dealing with human beings. But sometimes we have missionaries, for example, that are in places where they hear the Muslim call to prayer every day. They feel like they're in, a, in, in, a, in an entirely different world. It's a hard place. That's, the, that's, the, that's what's going on here. Elijah is going into the center of evil and idolatry. And he makes this proposal. He says, you, 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 you meet me at Carmel, those who eat at Jezebel's table. So that leads us to the purpose of the showdown. Verses 20 to 25 show us what they're going to do at this, this famous mountain. It says in verse 20, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people 
And so he, he gathers up all the people and he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Limping. So the, the, uh, the idea here is of wavering, right? He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. Like, who's your God? Follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. So don't be waffling. And what happens? What do, they, what do they say? It says, and the people did not answer him a word. Silence is noncommittal. I have five kids. They've, they've done this before. Some of them may be in here. But you, you ask them a question, and instead of answering, they're just quiet. Right? There's no verbals. That's what's going on. Elijah's in their face, and he's like, is the Lord God? Follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. Response? And he's like, I need a verbal. They want to partially serve Yahweh, but they also want to serve their false gods. It's quite a picture of what humanity has done through the ages. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now that's partially true. He's got the math right with the number of Baal's prophets, but he's not the only prophet. That's sort of a preview of of Elijah's humanity as he sort of has this discouragement pity party in chapter 19. But he is up against it. He is the underdog, that is for sure. And he says in verses uh, 23 and 24, here's what we're going to do. He says, let two bulls be given to us and then let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, I'll call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, while this whole thing is very spectacular, the point's really simple. Will the real God please stand up? That's all Elijah wants to know. I mean, there's a whole lot of, lot of fire and a lot of stuff happening here, but at the end of the day, the, the, the issue is basically this, which God answers prayer? Who is the living God? And so you can imagine this scene, can't you? One solitary guy. I pictured very hairy, very skinny, a rough-necked, brave-heart-looking guy, and he's going up against 400 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, arrayed, you can imagine, in their cultic attire, ready to perform their rituals, salivating at the opportunity to defeat Elijah. I picture Ahab rolling up in style, watching this whole event with his entourage and his chariots, taking the special seats of honor. What's going to happen? Well, notice verse 25, Elijah shows good sportsmanship. He says, I'll let you guys go first. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many and call upon the name of your God and put fire to it. So the stage is set, which God will answer prayer? Now again, I, I draw your attention to James chapter 5 where James says, as he's using Elijah as an illustration, he says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. Who is this righteous person? Well, a righteous person is the one who's come to God by grace through faith in Christ and is made righteous made right with God. They have a relationship with God. Their prayers are powerful. 
I don't have to tell you, but atheists mock our prayers. They think we're talking to an imaginary friend. But it's also possible to live like a functional atheist. Though you would never say that God doesn't answer prayer, you're, you actually have a very prayerless life. I want this text to encourage you, not to condemn you, to encourage you to believe that God hears you when you pray. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and listened to my pleas for mercy. He hears us. So here we go now. We're at the, 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 third, the third part, the prayer answering champion of the showdown. Two parts I want you to see in these verses from 26 down to verse 46. First of all, the emptiness of false religion and then the power of a real relationship with God. So first, we see this, this false religion on display. It says in 26, they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh Baal, answer us. So they called upon Baal, but no one answered. It's kind of like an old tune that I used to listen to called from a band, you, none of you know who it is unless you're my new edition. Mr. Telephone Man, there's something wrong with my line. When I dial my baby's number, I get a click every time. You ever heard that? That's what's going on here. They're, they're calling Baal. Ain't nobody listening. He gets a click every time. You need to recognize this, right? They're calling from morning until noon. A long worship service doesn't necessarily imply a powerful worship service. A long prayer doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good prayer. One of the things you see in this story is this. The object of your faith is more important than the degree of your faith. I say that again. The object of your faith is more important than the degree of your faith. You see, you can pray as intensely as you want to do from morning until noon, but if you've got the wrong God, it's useless. Doesn't matter what posture you get in, what direction you face, what clothes you have on. If you aren't praying to the living God, it's an exercise in futility. So that's what happened in verse 26. Then it says that they limped around the altar that they had made. Now, limped is not the best translation. They're dancing around it. And so there is a place for dancing, I do believe. I'm a Baptist, but I like to dance. Like there is, there is good news in the gospel, and that should make us happy. Like, like joy and awe are both appropriate in the Christian life. Both gravity and gladness are appropriate. But this dancing is different. They are trying to manipulate God by doing this sort of cultic ritual. Leaping around the altar. Oh, Baal, answer us. Right? Now, we love verse 27. Here's some holy sarcasm for you. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. A life verse. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Some of the translators are very timid. They don't say that. But I like the ESV here. Now, Elijah's not just talking trash. This was actually um, a belief about these gods. These gods were very human-like in that they did go to the bathroom. They did take trips and so on. So Elijah is, he is mocking them. In, uh, really, in, to, to, to show them the futility of what they're doing. Verses 28 and 29, they don't stop. So they've cried morning till noon, they've danced around, and now they even take it a step further, and they cut themselves 
and they rave into a frenzy, but it produced no fire. Notice 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Now, this is very common in many world religions, isn't it? Where you see people inflicting bodily harm upon themselves. It's not uncommon to see in certain countries people walk through with whips, just lashing their back. People will do all kinds of things to get guilt off of them, to try to somehow earn God's ear, to earn his acceptance. Well, fortunately, we don't have to cut ourselves. We don't have to bleed because Christ himself has bled for us. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So Elijah is showing Baal for what he is. He's sort of like the Wizard of Oz. Right? Once you finally get to Emerald City and you pull back the curtain, you see this little old guy with a megaphone. There's just nothing there. Baal is exposed. Great verse I, I thought of when I was reading this text, Psalm 135, 15 to 18. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who put their trust in them. That's a very important principle. You become like that which you worship. And those who worship false gods, those who worship idols, become like them. Useless, fruitless, foolish, dark. That's what's happening here. Well, put that now in contrast with Elijah, verses uh, 30 down to the end of the chapter. The power of a real relationship with God. Contrast all of that frenzy that you just see with these people trying to manipulate Baal to answer them and send fire with what Elijah does. Verse 30, he makes preparations. He says, to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. So he's reminding them of who their God really is, and consequently who their identity is, in light of who their God is. And with the stones he built the altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order to cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. He wants there to be no doubt that God, God is answering. He can light a fire with wet wood, which is good news for many churches, isn't it? And good news for our souls. Verse 34, and he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And now it's time for Elijah to offer his prayer. Now I want you to think about how long they prayed. And by the way, this is not a dissing long prayer. We need to have long times in prayer. I'll say more about that in a moment. But just, just consider how short Elijah's prayer is we're about to read. If you got a watch, you could time it and contrast it with morning until noon. Verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, here's his prayer, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. 
That's his prayer. It's not a long prayer. It's a sincere prayer. It's a God-centered prayer. It's focused on the Lord turning hearts. Notice verse 39, 38 rather. Then the fire of the Lord fell. One guy, verses 850, who pray for hours to a God that doesn't exist and nothing happens. One solitary guy with true faith prays a 30-second prayer and the fire falls. It says it licked up the water that was in the trench and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape and they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. A verse that troubles many modern readers. So you have to remember when you read that verse that Israel was a theocracy. And Elijah was just acting in accordance with Deuteronomy 13, where God said, if someone leads Israel into idolatry, they should be put to death with the sword. God took idolatry seriously. It was the great danger in Israel. But God preserved his people through the ages, and ultimately the Messiah came. And now we're not out slaughtering people who believe in other gods. We're actually laying down our lives for them. What we're trying to kill is the idolatry in our own hearts. Well, that's how the story ends. We've got a group of people now that seem to have turned to the Lord. And then it says in verse 41, Elijah, after now praying for fire, prays for rain because there's been a drought in Israel. He's prayed for the onset of the drought. This is the second part of what James says in James 5, that Elijah prayed again and it rained. So here it is, verse 41. Elijah said to Ahab, a great kindness, by the way, he shows to King Ahab. Go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing rain. So this is perhaps the sacrificial meal from the bull that was just, was just slaughtered. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked again and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times and the seventh time he said behold a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea and he said go up say to Ahab prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you and in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel and verse 46 tells us the secret of Elijah's ministry and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah that's the difference. Not your degree, not your education, not your background, not your parents. What matters is the hand of the Lord being upon you. He gathered up his garment. This is pretty impressive if you like athletics. He ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. That's a 17-mile run. You've seen uh, 26.1 or whatever on the back of cars. Elijah had a 17 I imagine. He's a very athletic prophet. We do appreciate that. He's the Usain Bolt of the prophets. And so this is where the story ends. It seems that there's great kindness being expressed to Ahab. That's why he's running ahead of Ahab. He's letting him know that we can actually work in tandem and not as enemies. You would expect even Ahab to, to turn to the Lord now. 
Unfortunately, that's not the way chapter 19 begins. But we do marvel at God's grace to Ahab. His grace just kept going out. But Ahab, like the other kings of Israel, failed. But in Jesus Christ, we finally get the king we need. God preserves the line until the son of David is born in Bethlehem. And Jesus would be our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king, all in one. Now, where I'd like to end, students, is, is just with a few lessons from Elijah on prayer, very practically, and then I want to lead us in a prayer as the close of our time. Spurgeon called um, Elijah the, the mighty master of the art of prayer. And I've been really challenged by it. So let me give you six quick uh, challenges. Number one, if you want to pray like Elijah, because James tells us he's an example, know the living God personally. What is it that made Elijah's prayer different than the, the prayers of these false prophets? He knew the living God. And you and I know the Father through the Son by the Spirit. You can have a relationship with God. You can call on him. And he hears us. Number two, notice what Elijah does in verses 36 and 7. A challenge to seek the glory of God supremely. He says, right at the beginning of that prayer, he says, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Let it be known that you are God. This is how Jesus taught us to pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Make your name great. Let's pray like that. What is it that you want to happen in your city? What is it that you want to happen on your campus? What is it that you want to happen in your life? Isn't it that God would be glorified? Be glorified should be a regular prayer of believers. Our church is going through the Gospel of John. and In John 12, right before you begin the, the Last Supper and the Farewell Discourse, Jesus just offers this really short prayer John records for us. Father, glorify your name. Every day that should be our prayer. All the time that should be our prayer. Know the living God personally. Seek the glory of God supremely. Number three, this is what Elijah does. Pray for rebels to turn to God wholeheartedly. I love that Elijah, even though he's got to be upset with these individuals who are worshiping false gods, prays for their conversions. He says, pray, Lord, that, and, and turn their hearts back. Are you praying for conversions? Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. I have two lists of names in my prayers, those for whose conversions I pray and those for whose conversions I give thanks. This, the little trickle of transferences from list A to list B is a great comfort. May the Lord give us many little trickles as we transfer them from A to B. Number four, based on Elijah going on the mountain to pray for rain, let me encourage you to get alone with God regularly. In the beginning of 18, when the fire falls, it's a public prayer. It's, everybody sees it. And then at the end of 18, it's just Elijah and his servant, and he's praying for God to send rain. Get alone with God regularly. Spend time with him. Pray for the fire to fall. Pray for the rain to fall. Number five, Keep seeking God persistently. Do you notice there at the end of chapter 18, Elijah says to his servant, go back seven times. 
right? God promised that it was going to rain. Chapter 18 begins this way in verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Well, he shows himself to Ahab. He knows God has promised to send rain, which is my sixth point. Pray with the promise of God, the promises of God, confidently. So let's put those two together. He has the promise, but God doesn't answer immediately for the rain, does he? Elijah prays persistently. Now, you might think when you read about a promise and then a call to prayer that it seems strange. If God's promised that it's going to rain, why is Elijah praying for it? But you need to remember, students, that, that the promises are invitations. They're invitations to pray. It's the promises of God that teach us what to pray for. And so let me encourage you in your prayer life to take the Word of God and pray it. Elijah is a mighty master of the art of prayer and in his life in so many ways points us forward to the Lord Jesus. And it's because of Jesus Christ that we can pray to the Father. It's because there was a battle on another hillside. The most important showdown to ever happen happened at Golgotha. As Jesus Christ, the ultimate mediator, prophet, and king was slaughtered, for idolaters like us, and then triumphed over the grave, conquering sin, Satan, death, bringing us into a relationship with the Father, and giving us the ability to pray. That was the ultimate showdown. And right now, Jesus Christ is interceding for us. He is committed to us, even when we fail him. You see, Elijah was a forerunner. He was the forerunner, preparing the way for Christ. And in the New Testament, we find something very remarkable. In Matthew chapter 17, we find Elijah on another mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. And there, Elijah and Moses are talking to Jesus. You see, Elijah saw the real king, the Lord of glory. And one day we will too. And now we say, if Jesus is Lord, then follow him. If Jesus is Lord, then follow him. Let's not waver between two opinions. Let's say the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is Lord. And so let's follow him in bold faith. Let's follow him in desperate prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these students. Thank you for the truths of Scripture. Thank you for the example of Elijah. Father, I pray that you would forgive us of our prayerlessness, of our feeling that we're self-sufficient, we're independent, we can do this on our own. I pray that you would give us a renewed sense of desperation and give us a high view of who you are. We pray for our churches, Lord, that the rain would fall, that we would give fruit in our lives that the rain would fall. We pray, Father, for those that we're ministering to and perhaps even in this room who are wavering between two opinions. They have yet to fully commit to follow the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would draw them to yourself, show them the, the futility of following anything else or anyone else. So grant us grace, we pray. Pray for a new generation 
of students that will go into enemy-occupied territories like Elijah and believe that you are the real God and you will show up strong. Increase our faith, increase our affections, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.